Welcome to the Hayes Worldwide Leadership Insights Podcast. In this series, I'll be talking to business leaders from across the world of work who will be sharing their expertise to help you effectively lead your business, both now and in the future. As leaders continue to navigate the changes of the COVID-19 pandemic, factors such as extended periods of remote working and a lack of face-to-face collaboration can have a damaging impact on employee productivity. So today we're joined by Tim Ringo, award-winning HR consultant and author of the book, Solving the Productivity Puzzle. Tim is here to share how leaders can engage, motivate and develop their employees to improve both individual and business performance. Hi, Tim, and thank you very much for joining us here today. Hi, Megan. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. To start, could I ask you to please introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Tim Ringa. I'm a former management consultant and software executive. I recently retired, or as I like to call it, pro-tired, because I'm still doing things like like podcasts and writing books and those sorts of things. But I started out my career in Anderson Consulting back in 1990. Anderson Consulting is now known as Accenture. So I was a management consultant for 25 years. I was there for 16 years. I was a senior partner and was then recruited to IBM to be vice president and lead up their human capital consulting practice in 2006. I did that globally, so spent a lot of time on an airplane. Also wrote a book at that time called Calculating Success with my co-authors, and that book was about workforce analytics, which that was about 10 or 12 years ago, so it was a little bit ahead of its time. And then I joined SAP Success Factors as a vice president, so the last five years working alongside the Success Factors sales teams, helping SAP customers understand how to get the best out of their success factor system. And then, as you mentioned, I wrote my latest book, which is called Solving the Productivity Puzzle. It came out late last year in 2020. It turns out it's it's really timely because everybody's talking about productivity now. So it's been really good. It was just shortlisted for Business Book of the Year by the Business Book Awards. So I'm really pleased with how it's been received so far. That's great. Congratulations on that shortlist. Thanks for telling us a bit about yourself and your professional background. Now, What sparked your interest in productivity and led you to write your book? Well, it was uh, in 2016, I was looking at a paper by the OECD. I guess I'm one of those sad people who actually read OECD white papers. But uh, as you know, OECD is the world's economic body. They do their big part in calculating gross domestic product, both globally and then and then by country. But they, they put out a paper that was really, really pessimistic about the future, which essentially said that the average annual rate of GDP growth is going to be stagnant or decline over the next 50 years, which essentially means that 50 years from now, we would be likely to have less prosperity and lower living standards than we have today. I mean, that's the outcome of of GDP going down. And the reason for it, the the vast majority of the reason for it was people productivity. And they gave three reasons why there was an issue. First of all, that organizations weren't spending enough on aligning people to new technology. So investing in learning and change management and those sorts of things, and, and simply just explaining to people what, what what new technology was being implemented. The second was they weren't adjusting their processes for digitization. So a digital organization that we were still using sort of, you know, 20th century processes. And then the third one was their prediction was that, you know, organizations were not going to change their organization structures to take advantage of, of new technology. So pretty grim. 
Um, and I certainly agreed with those three things, but I didn't see those as long-term issues. In fact, I saw the opposite, which is that companies are working really hard on those three things to to, to fix them, to align people to technology, to re-engineer processes, to flatten out org structures. And so I thought it was overly pessimistic, and I sort of took an optimistic view and wrote a book about, you know, what I saw were the trends that were emerging that were both challenges but also opportunities. And then I wrote about solutions. Really, the main part of the book is focusing on how do we fix this. And I've been lucky enough in a 30-year career to work with some of the world's biggest and most successful companies. And I've got to see what they do to create higher performing and, and productive workforces. So I focused in the book on really on the solutions. But that's what inspired me when I thought, wow, that's a really pessimistic view and we really do need to fix this. And so that's why I wrote the book. Thanks, Tim. That's a lot of insight. Thank you. To really kick this conversation off, I wonder, what do you mean by the term productivity in real terms? Well, this is the immediate problem I ran into when I sat down to write the book, which I, I looked up what's the definition of productivity because it had been you know, 30 years since I was in business school. I thought, well, I should probably go have a look at it again. I found the following, and I'll read the definition um, just to show you how boring it is. But it's, uh, it's, it's the following. It's various measures of the efficiency of production. A productivity measure is expressed as the ratio of output to inputs used in production process, i.e. output per unit of input. So that's very 18th, 19th century. That is people as machines picking fruit on a farm or producing widgets. That's just not what work is like today. You know, 70, 80% of us work in offices. And so I thought, right, I'm going to have to redefine this in order to, to kind of unpick the issue. And so I came up with the following, which is getting stuff done that measurably improves the economic and human interest of organizations and society at large. So I took that kind of one-dimensional view about you know people producing things and said, look, it's a broader thing. It's absolutely about production, but it's it's the outcomes of those productions. So the impact on the economic, the human interest, and then organizations and society at large. It's all of these things. And you know, essentially had to come up with that new definition, have something to aim at that, that helped solve the problem. And so that's kind of what I hang the whole book on, which is, well, okay, well, what's underneath that? And for me, there's three things. There's the physical side, absolutely. You always have to measure the dollars and cents and the outputs. But there's the second piece, which is creating workplaces where people can flourish. So what we call it engagement, an engaged workforce. And then the third is, well, guess what? Engaged workforces are innovative. They figure out new ways of doing things. They come up with new products, new services. And you get this kind of virtuous cycle of, well, engaged workforce creates innovation, which creates more money and prosperity. Um, so that's kind of how I've defined it. It's a you know broader, more three-dimensional definition. What impact has the COVID-19 pandemic had on the world's productivity? Well, initially, I mean, a year ago, Think if we think about it, gosh, it's it's <laughs> it seems crazy that we're still here a year a year from now we're still in lockdown. But that immediate sort of first three months, March, April, May, it, that was a massive impact on the world's productivity. I mean, it's it's been centuries since we've seen you know particularly in this country in the UK that level of productivity drop. But what we've seen is is quite quickly 
in the following nine months is we've dug ourselves out of that hole. And in fact, because we were already in a situation where productivity was going down, we've actually started to see productivity get back to where it was and start to go beyond. So we've, we're actually seeing the initial numbers are starting to come through. So the January, February this year that starts to show really interestingly in that people working from home, people working flexibly, and people being innovative in how they work is actually starting to solve the productivity problem. It's starting to impact and create greater productivity. So in a sense, it, initially it was a huge shock and a huge drag on productivity, but we're starting to see some numbers that indicate we're actually starting to come out of this better than we, we were when we went into it, which is, which is fascinating. So you've just mentioned that we're starting to see productivity figures rise again. How exactly can leaders measure productivity? So that new definition that I described starts to measure a number of things, right? The old one just just measured the outputs that people were creating. The new definition, you can and should measure things like your workforce's satisfaction, your workforce's engagement levels, right? These are things you can actually measure scientifically and, and, and put dollars and pounds to, right? So that's the first thing. The second thing is that when you got that engaged workforce and they're impacting positively on the organization, well, guess what? You're getting outputs, but more importantly, you're starting to get outcomes, right? And outcomes are the things that drive what a business actually produces for its customers or for the taxpayers, right? And so you can actually make this direct link between engagement and people doing more and doing it better and then the outputs and take it one step further and say, right, those outputs together create an outcome, right? So let's take, for example, that a high-tech company comes up with a, a new version of, of a phone that nobody's ever thought of, right? It's kind of like the iPhone was 15 years ago and comes up with this kind of you know, new thing. I don't know what it would be. It's almost ahead of the market. But essentially, you know, that came because people saw a new way of doing things, a new product, a new, you know, something that people would want and took that to market. And there was outputs in producing that, but ultimately you get that phone to the market, people start buying it, becomes the next big thing. That's an outcome. That's a huge outcome. You know, that's a multi-billion dollar outcome. And so those are the things that you want to measure. You want to measure the engagement through to the innovation that it creates, through to the outputs, and then ultimately the outcome that it creates. And that's what we're missing today. We're missing all those pieces in between. But we're also missing that, you know, these products and services that we're producing these days are sometimes uh, ones and zeros. It's software, it's these sorts of things, which I think we have a real problem in measuring the outcome of those things. And that's what economists are starting to get better at, which so we'll be able to be able to measure those ones and zeros in real dollars and pounds uh, sense. But that's kind of how I see you know things improving in terms of us being able to measure productivity properly and also measure the uplift that we're going to see in productivity. Now, I think you've started to touch on this in some of your answers just now, but I want to ask why do you think the productivity puzzle is such an important one to solve for leaders and organizations? And is it becoming an even more important puzzle to solve as we start to emerge from the pandemic? Yeah, so as Professor Krugman is is famous for saying not too long ago, I think in the past 10 years or so, that in the short term, productivity is is kind of neither here nor there, but in the long term, productivity is everything, right? And that's absolutely true because the, the only way that economies and societies grow and prosper is by creating ever more 
productivity in terms of what people produce and innovation that, that, that they create. It's the only way that we can see stock markets go up. It's the only way we can see profits go up. It's the only way we can see wages and those sorts of things come up. So for leaders of organizations, whether you're public sector or private, I mean, if you're public sector, your customers are taxpayers, and it's about how you effectively use those tax dollars. If you're private sector, you know, you're probably shareholder heads. It's about it's about the shareholders. But increasingly, it's becoming more about, you know, what you're doing for society in terms of raising all boats, right, in terms of prosperity, not just the shareholders. And so leaders need to recognize that the linkage between that engaged workforce and the innovation, then the productivity they create, and then, oh, guess what? What that does in to the to the outside world in terms of, of everybody's prosperity and everybody's um, uh, standards of living. And this is really, you know, part of the thing that I think, frankly, business schools sometimes miss, right? They, they miss making these connections and it becomes down to dollars and cents and, you know, people as headcount and that sort of thing when, when it's a much more complex picture. And that's what real leaders, they understand the, that equation. And how important is it for leaders to really understand the individual motivations of their people in driving productivity? How can they go about improving this understanding? Well, you know, I kind of learned this the hard way in in my career. Maybe not the hard way, but in you know, it took some time. Which is that you know, as a leader, as a manager, one of the things that I learned is you know, I need to understand everybody who works with me and works for me. I I need to understand my colleagues and my team. What motivates each one of them individually, both personally and and at work, and then help everybody to kind of understand each other in that way. Because understanding individual motivation and then team motivations allows you to do everything you need to drive productivity, right? Because people are – they have a desire – to do particular work. And unfortunately, a lot of people end up in work that doesn't fulfill that desire. And really, a leader's job is to help people get to that job, to that thing that they're really good at, and and help them flourish in that situation once they find it. So your your job is to kind of move people around the deck chairs and get them in the right place at the right time with the right skills and help them then develop from there. And you can only do that if you understand their motivations. If you don't understand what motivates them, it's impossible to get them in the right place to do, you know, doing the right things. So it kind of was trial and error for me. I sort of figured out. And so what I did going forward is I would always sit down with a new direct reporter, a new team and get to know each one of them personally and what, you know, ask them directly, what motivates you? What can I do to, because you can't, a manager cannot make it, you know, a hundred percent that somebody is doing the exact thing that they've always wanted to do. And that's it just doesn't work that way but you know if you're trying and you're getting at 50 percent or 70 percent people totally appreciate that and you're going to get the most from them so it's really about learning to understand their motivations listening and understanding what they're saying and then and then really use that to, to to help them flourish of course today we can't have this conversation without me asking if you think that people's motivations have changed as a result of the pandemic yeah, it's anecdotal, but I mean, in a you know, talking to people and in, in my street and you know, colleagues and ex-colleagues and that sort of thing, I'm getting the sense that a lot of people are kind of stepping back and saying, well, you know, this is somewhat of a of a kind of near-death experience, right? In terms of this crisis, it must have been how people felt maybe after World War II was over. It's like, wow, I got through that some somehow, and 
I just, you know, I want to think about how I live my life and the way I live my life. And I think a lot of people are going to do that. And I think you're going to see a lot of people look at the manager they work for, look at the organization they, they work for and say, is this really where I want to be and what I want to do? Because one, the economy is really going to take off, I think, later this year and people are going to have choices. So I think people are going to vote to go places where managers have high EQ, right, high empathy, um, who took care of people during the crisis. They're going to go to places that it matches more or their, their personal, you know, their personal values, which is what I was talking about a moment ago. And they're going to they're gonna do that. And I'm hearing a lot of people saying, yeah, you know, I think I'm going to change job or I'm going to do things differently going forward. And this has been such a long crisis that I think it's given people a very long time to think about these, these rather deep things. And so, yeah, I think it's going to have a, a big impact. And the other side of it is I think there's going to be a lot of people who go back to work who are traumatized and don't know it. And it's going to be up to those managers to recognize, we're not psychologists, but you should be able to tell somebody's not well, not in trouble. It's going to be up to us to help them get what they need to be well. And guess what? If you do that, they're going to probably want to stay and work with you. So it's, I think that's the other side of it, that people have had life-changing situation. But I think a lot of people don't recognize that they're probably somewhat traumatized coming out of the, the past year. Yeah, I think that echoes a lot of uh, a lot of conversations we've had on this podcast with well-being experts and people in that arena. Certainly, certainly that's come through. What role does reward and recognition play in improving the productivity of a workforce? Well, I'll tell you one role it plays at the moment is it absolutely, and and, and this is proven, and I'll point you towards the data that shows this. It is proven that the way we do recognition and performance management today and how we pay people actually demotivates them. It reduces productivity. So if you think about it, and this is what um, we've seen for over 100 years, but essentially the way you know Western capitalism is set up and way organizations are set up is it's the carrot stick. So I will give you a fantastic bonus if you produce more widgets and you do it faster and with higher quality. And you can get a promotion as well. Or if you don't do what I've asked, then you're going to be punished, right? And that is essentially how work has been since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Well, guess what? Certainly that works if somebody is in a, on a farm or in a factory and you pay them a big bonus. They are going to pick faster or they're going to produce faster and they're going to pay attention to the quality of that. But the fact is, is that if you're in an office environment where 70, 80% of us are, and you say, I'm going to give you a cash bonus for your knowledge expertise and from working with other people, you know, in a team to produce something, guess what? That person gets very focused on their money. <laughs> They're not focused on the team. They're focused on their bonus. And Daniel Pink's book, Drive, so D-R-I-V-E, so like drive, driving a car. Daniel Pink, he's an MIT economist, wrote a book 10 years ago that still is got repercussions today. It's really caused people to sit back and think about the, the whole idea of rewards and recognition. Essentially what he found in his in his data, and he looked at this in, in great levels of detail, he found that for, for office, you know, knowledge workers, intrinsic motivation, which is why they come to work for you, why they come to do what they do, the motivation of that is as important as the money. And if you then put their focus completely on the extrinsic, which is the money and the bonus, you are cutting off half of the motivation and you're distracting them. So you're seeing a lot of organizations, particularly after the 2008 financial crisis, particularly in the financial service industry, said, right, we've got to get rid of these big bonuses because it created a situation where people focused 
closed on the money, took huge risks and almost brought the whole system down, right? And so they moved more towards instead of giving investment bankers, you know, big cash bonuses, give them shares of the company. And guess what? It changes your thinking. Suddenly you're an owner, right? And you're focused on the organization growing and becoming more prosperous than you are on just focused on your personal cash bonus. So you're seeing a lot of organizations starting to mix non-cash rewards into their uh, rewards to people because it, it takes the money off the, off the table. And you know who doesn't want shares of a growing enterprise? Or if you're in the public sector, public sector saying, well, we'll pay for your PhD or we'll, you know, other non-cash sort of things. And, and this is really starting to fix the problem. It's taking people out from focusing on their cash bonus to starting to focus as working as a team because there's something at stake for everybody. And, and that's you know, really come from his book. And, and a lot of people said, we have to rethink this because that in, intrinsic motivation is being left on the table and people were not tapping into it. On a similar vein, what impact does high turnover have on productivity? Is it a good or a bad thing? So if we go back to the GE Capital days of, of Jack Welch in, in the sort of 80s, I mean, his view was, well, turnover is a great thing. You know, you want people to leave your organization, particularly if they're on the lower end of, of the performance scale. And that kind of held sway until well into the 21st century. But it's really proven to be a kind of a false economy that this whole idea is that you want turnover and you want to push people out is really the thinking on that's changed quite dramatically and that what we're finding is that turnover is extremely cost costly on so many levels first of all that you have to replace that person and the cost to recruit them is very expensive these days plus get them up to speed and then we don't think about the disruption to teams that that person was in that you took out and now you put a new person in and then you know the pro productivity of that team and so you know jack welch kind of missed something which said you know yeah certainly you can probably save some money by moving somebody out who seems to be low performing you know there's probably some question around whether that was really the case in the first place anyway but so so but you're not thinking about the broader kind of impact and you know you should pull out all the stops that you can back to it's the leaders on, needs to understand the motivation of the person and help them get to the right place at the right time uh, in the right job and from there it's saying well actually when you turn that thinking around, it says, no, turnover is a really bad thing. So my experience, personal experience as an executive, and then what I've seen working with organizations, turnover is really, really bad for organizations. And you want to keep it as low as, as sustainably possible. If you need to, maybe move people into different positions. But you want to try to hold on to that workforce because of the cost, the disruptions, and the ultimate impact on productivity. I want to go back to something that we mentioned earlier when, when discussing the pandemic and its impact on people's motivation, uh, is I think there's a little bit more to unpick there. What about well-being and its role in productivity? What should leaders keep in mind about this? Well, it's really interesting because when I sat down to write the book and I was looking at various trends and things that I thought were going to be important based on my research for, you know, to impact and improve productivity, one of one of the ones that I looked at and kind of tossed aside was well-being. So I'm a I'm a baby boomer slash Gen X. So I'm literally on the cusp of both of those generations. So to a certain extent, I think my baby boomer part of me was saying, well, you know, just work harder and, you know, what's all this well-being stuff? But my wife kept putting articles and papers in my hand and saying, you know, you really have to look at this. This is really important. And I started doing a lot more research and I got the opportunity to spend some time with Ariana Huffington while I was at SAP and her Thrive uh, initiative and really came out thinking, all right, well-being is in the top three things of the top 10 things that you want to do. To, to fix productivity. 
And so it went from being like not even going to be part of the book to like one of the most important things when I did proper research on it. And the reason is because there's there's three aspects to it. It isn't just about having a gym on the first floor. It's actually there's three elements that are really important. It's the physical. You should always do everything you can to to help your workforce be as physically well as they can. I mean, maybe it's as simple as as handing out water bottles. I mean, you know, drinking enough water during the day can improve your your cognitive function by up to twenty percent. So little things like that, or having a gym, or you know, those types of things, health insurance, all those sort of stuff. But that's one part of it, and a lot of people stop there when it actually there's two more pieces. The second one is mental health. Mental health is just as big as physical health. In fact, in some cases, and I think after the pandemic, we're going to have more mental health problems than we do physical problems, which, of course, mental health then leads to physical problems. But, you know, this is a huge thing, and it needs to be made okay in an organization to say, I am not well, both physically and mentally. And for that organization then to step in and say, right, we've got some things we can do to help you. People never forget that, right? And and that's really important. So that, that physical and mental well-being is important. But there's a third element, which I also think is going to be really important coming out of the pandemic, is the financial. Financial stress has a huge impact on people's mental health and then their physical health. And whatever organizations can do to you know, reduce that stress around financial. So a lot of people may be worried about losing their jobs. Well, come out and tell them they're not going to if, if you really believe that's the case because people are worried. Second, a lot of people are financially strapped at the moment. So a number of organizations are setting up the ability for you to borrow money against your salary without ever asking your boss. You can just go online, do it, and nobody knows about it, right? It's kept anonymous. And that that really reduces stress because you don't have to go to your boss and say, look, can I borrow? I need to 500 pounds. You know, that has a huge impact on people to know they've got that safety net, that they could get some money if they, if they need it and not have to go begging. So these things are really important altogether. And you don't really have well-being in an organization. So you've got those three things and then all the, the, the subsequent parts that make that up. Wow, it sounds like you had quite a shift in positions with regards to um, to how much you prioritize well-being in solving the productivity crisis. I did, yeah. <laughs> and Ed, you can thank my wife for that. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any other elements of the overall employee experience that leaders need to keep in mind when tackling dips in productivity? It's really interesting, but it's been in the past three or four years where I've started to hear very senior executive CEOs, you know, the top leadership of companies starting to talk about digital at home, digital at work, meaning that senior leaders are seeing that at home, we have fantastic devices that make us highly productive. We have our Alexas, and I'm going to set mine off, I think, here in a moment, I'm sitting here on my desk. We have our smart refrigerators, right? Ours here orders um, milk and those sorts of things when it when the camera sees that we've run out of these things. You know, we've got various things that make us really super productive at home. But then you get to work and it's like 1990 all over again. It's a it's a PC with a screen and a mouse and a keyboard. You don't talk to anything. You don't have anything that's automated. It's all still very... And, and so a lot of senior executives have really come around to hang on a minute. Productivity is going up at home. It's not going up. At, why don't we start to make 
you know, work look like home in terms of productivity? Why don't we have digital assistants for our people? Why don't we have, you know, smart technology that does things without you even having to ask it to do it? And and so that you're seeing a big focus on human experience at work. And that's not just the human resources side of it, it's everything, right? It's how your boss interacts with you. It's how the technology at work interacts with you. It's how the entire organization is set up to help you flourish, right? And and that isn't a, a kind of charity thing. I mean, if you flourish, the organization flourishes, right? Senior level people realizing that this, this human experience is so important that everything should be designed in the organization around the employee and the customer. Right now, most things are, are around the taxpayer or the customer. Now they're saying, right, no, it's, it's, it's employee and customer or taxpayer, and we should design everything around those things. And that, that's a huge shift. And for me, that's a big part of solving the, the productivity puzzle. The employee experience, you're going to hear more and more about that in the coming years. And, and I think the pandemic's accelerated it. People have been working at home. They're going to come back to work and say, well, hang on a minute. This still feels like, you know, I feel like I've stepped back 10 years, 20 years, right? So that'll be interesting. And can strategic workforce planning boost the productivity of a workforce? How can leaders go about doing this effectively? Yeah. I mean, not only can it, it will. It absolutely does. And it's it's really interesting. You're seeing a number of universities, business schools, setting up whole degrees around strategic workforce planning. And that is because organizations are asking for that capability. That is going to, they are going to be the rock stars of the next decade, right? People who do strategic workforce planning, getting right people, right skills, right place, right time, right motivation is, it's the core of my book, actually, that, that quote unquote equation, adding all those things up. That's what gives you people engagement, innovation, and performance. When people are, are actively managed in a way such that they're in the right skills, right place, right time, right motivation, that's good for everybody. And for me, when I looked at, you know, what do top organizations do, the ones that have solved the productivity puzzle? Well, guess what? They do that really well. And they don't just do strategic workforce planning for the moment, like, you know, this week or next week. They, they can look out 18 months and say, based on economic conditions and supply and demand, this we, we can see it's going to look like this. So they're all always looking out into the future to make their decisions today. And it's it's going to be, for the companies that get this right, they're going to have a huge strategic advantage because there's already a number of companies that do this really well. You know, companies like IBM, companies like SAP, others are really good at getting their work workforce in the right place. And, and this is going to be really important. But we have to understand that, first of all, it's a mindset, right, to say, right, as a leader, that's my job. Right. And then secondly, it's putting in place processes, digitally enabled processes that will allow this to happen. And third, then it's plugging in technology to do it intelligently using artificial intelligence and, and machine learning. Notice I put technology third on that list, and that's that's intentional because it's a mindset first. Leaders have to have this in their mind. It's just how they how they lead. And then everything flows. So it's absolutely critical this going forward. And it sounds kind of boring. I mean, strategic workforce planning does not sound sexy or exciting, but it's going to be, and it's going to be really important for organizations, you know, whether you're a manufacturer or uh, you're a, a very large recruitment company. We've spoken about so much here today. As something of a summary, what do you think the most productive organizations and leaders do differently? Well, I think to summarize, I think they are very good at understanding the details of their workforce, starting with motivation. They are very good at listening, and then they're very good at 
taking those two things and deploying that workforce in the most effective way and constantly changing the mix to fit both what the worker's looking for in terms of their aspirations, but also for what the customer needs, right? And they're constantly moving people around in, in, in you know, like on the chessboard, get them in the right place to get the most advantage for, for the employee, but also for the, for the end customer. And, you know, for me, that's what the most productive organizations do. But they also, they invest in this, right? They, they have the mindset and then they invest heavily in it and they don't make it a one-off. It's a constant investment, right? It's just part of doing business. And, you know, that's the, the, the organizations that are going to really do the, the best in, the, in this next decade. Thanks. Now, I'd like to finish with a question that we ask all of our guests. What do you think are the three qualities that make a good leader? And crucially, do you think these qualities have changed as a result of the pandemic? Yeah, so for, for me, I think the three things are this in the following order. I think a good leader and a great leader has a clear vision and purpose, right? So they know exactly where the organization is going, what's the purpose of that, and are able to articulate it in a way that's that's compelling, which gets to number two, being a really good communicator, right? And these are two things that, that you can learn to do, right? You can learn to have a discipline around knowing exactly what your vision and your purpose is and developing that. And then you can learn how to then communicate that very effectively and and, and compelling. But the, but the third one is not as easily to be learned. And, and it's something I call EQ. So it's empathy. So the, the leaders of the future of, of the coming 10 years, the rock stars of the coming 10 years are going to be people who have high EQ. They're great listeners. They're genuinely empathetic about human beings and people and society at large. And that's who people are going to gravitate towards to work. A lot of that is going to be because of the pandemic. It was already kind of heading in that direction, but the, the pandemic has accelerated this, this idea of leaders with high EQ. And that is something that is not always learned. It is in many people, it's they're kind of born with it, but you can develop it over time. You can you can discipline yourself to be a good listener and 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 show interest in other people and that sort of thing. But it's going to be really important going forward. And I think that's who you'll see, you know, emerge uh, in the future. And that'll be a big part of fixing the solving solving the productivity puzzle, I think. Thank you so much for joining us today, Tim. This has been a really insightful conversation and I have no doubt that our listeners will have a lot of takeaways about the productivity puzzle and how to solve it from this podcast. Thank you. No, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hayes Worldwide Leadership Insights Podcast. If you found this advice useful, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. At the same time, if you have any questions or suggestions, feel free to reach out to us via email at socialmedia at haze.com.